0: Good morning, Baylife. Would you do me a courtesy and turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians? Chapter 5 will be in verses 6 to 14. If you've been with us for the last couple months, then you know that we as a church have been walking together through the book of Ephesians for really the better part of a year, just walking verse by verse through this text. And that's a fitting portion of Scripture for any church to walk through because Paul spends so much time in Ephesians talking about what it means to be saved and what the church is. The first two chapters are the ones in which he deals with sort of the Trinitarian dimensions of salvation, that we have been adopted by the Father. The blood of Jesus has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. We've been sealed by the Spirit. And then he talks in chapter 4 about what unity within the body of Christ, all of these people who have been saved and delivered out of the world and into the kingdom of Christ, how it is that we live together as one body. And then he gets a little bit more individualistic, if we can use that term. In chapter 5, he begins to explain what it looks like for each of us as members of this corporate body to live lives of righteousness. Mark taught us from the early parts of chapter 5 last week where we see Paul warn us against things like covetousness, sexual immorality, crude joking, idolatry. He issues this charge that should terrify you if you really think about what he's asking. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God. That is a heavy burden to carry. Paul's chief concern in everything that we talked about last week is that the church, namely the people who comprise the church, would look different from the world out of which they have been redeemed. That they would conduct themselves with holiness and righteousness that they would walk in love, that they would demonstrate that they are children of God in the way that they operate in God's world. That's Paul's concern as we continue chapter 5. So we're going to get right into it. Would you hear the word of the Lord? Chapter 5, verse 6 of Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, It will rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul begins, or rather he continues where he left off last week in verse 6, saying, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, that is all of the stuff that he mentioned, immorality, covetousness, greed, idolatry, for account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, it's important to do a little bit of contextualizing here. So that we can understand what, what are the empty words that Paul is concerned by? What are, the, what are the things that he doesn't want the church to be deceived about? Because, but because what it seems is going on is that Paul has sort of warned the church to avoid particular sins, particular forms of sin. But there are people who might make their best effort to convince the church that these things that Paul has just said are a big deal aren't really that big of a deal. What many scholars would say is that Paul is experiencing the early forms of what would come to be known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism wasn't fully developed in Paul's day. It It was very much in its sort of seed form. And yet, within 100 to 200 years, it became a massive threat to Christian orthodoxy. And Gnostics believed all sorts of different things, but one of the primary beliefs that they held was that the material world, the physical world, was evil. And what really mattered was what you knew, the Greek word gnosis means knowledge, and how you felt in your heart. And so the basic argument of Gnostics, in many cases, probably in Paul's day, was it doesn't really matter what you do, it matters what you think and how you feel. You can do whatever you want, physically, you can drink as much as you want, you can eat as much as you want, you can say whatever you want, what matters is what's in your heart. And God's not going to judge you for anything that you do in the physical world. He's going to judge you for what's going on in your interior world. This was sort of what was coming against Paul. He says, don't let these people deceive you with their empty words, saying that these things don't matter. They do matter. Of course, we don't have Gnosticism in our day and age, at least not in its ancient form. And yet that impulse is still there. That impulse is sort of all-pervasive in our culture. What I fear is that many of us hear what John rightly says, that God is love, and we interpret that to mean God never gets mad about anything. Maybe you even felt that when I I read from uh, Paul's words, that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You kind of cringed when you heard that. There's a... There's something to which I'm incredibly sympathetic in that sensibility because maybe you're like me, maybe you're a few years younger or older than me, but you grew up in, in a culture in which Christians were convinced that just about everything was bringing the wrath of God. So for example, like when I was younger, my parents were really good about not sort of buying into this, but I was surrounded by sort of a Christian culture that said that on account of Pokemon, which teaches evolution and Harry Potter, which teaches witchcraft, and Power Rangers, which teaches violence. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And even as a kid, I was like, really? And maybe you're from a generation prior, which says that on account of card playing and dancing and tattoos and listening to Led Zeppelin records, on account of all these things, the wrath of God is coming. And you got to a point where you said... "I." I don't know if those are actually the things provoking the wrath of God. And when you jettison that idea, the wrath of God that was bound up in it went with it. If the things that I was told provoke God's wrath don't actually provoke God's wrath, then that must mean that God doesn't have any wrath at all. And initially, that might feel comforting. Right? That God is love. He's the cosmic equivalent of a smiley face emoji. He doesn't get upset about anything. Life's good. And yet, as comforting as that might seem initially, I actually think that's profoundly dangerous and it erodes comfort for people who have suffered real evil. Because a God without wrath, a God without wrath, what does such a God have to say to the victims of something like human trafficking? What does a God without wrath have to say to somebody who has been the victim of violence? What does a God without wrath have to say to somebody who has suffered from covetousness and greed, as Paul mentions in this letter, who has been oppressed economically? What does a God without wrath have to say to that other than sort of shrugging and smiling? We rightly recoil at that. Those things make us angry because they should. And a God who doesn't have wrath towards those things is not a God at all. It's our well-wishes personified. Of course, it's easy for us to to think about the wrath of God when it comes to these big sins, these grand sort of systematic issues of evil that we all collectively know are wrong, and it's it's okay for us, and, and we maybe don't struggle so much with thinking about God being angry about those things. Yet the wrath of God towards our sin is something that we downplay. We go, I'm not systematically oppressing people and keeping them in poverty. I'm not a violent person. I haven't ever physically hurt somebody. And so God can be mad at those people out there, but not the sin in here, because my sin is not as big of a deal. And yet, I think Joshua Ryan Butler, who's a pastor out in Portland, is really helpful in this regard. He Specifically works with the church's missions and outreach programs, which means that he spends a lot of time working with people who are the victims of things like gang violence or people who are the victims of extreme poverty in in other countries. And, And he was perfectly content with sort of wrapping his mind around the wrath of God towards people who do these terrible things out there. But the more he thought about that, he said, I want God to be mad about things like that. I'm okay with the wrath of God around those big issues. But then he looked inward. He said, where does this stuff come from? Ultimately, what we see on a global scale is the the full blossom of sins that begin as seeds in each and every one of our hearts. Like violence that we all know is wrong. That starts with anger. And that seed is in all of our hearts. Greed that, that can crush so many people. That starts with you just kind of cutting corners in your business and scamming people out of money. And it blossoms and it blossoms and it blossoms until it becomes this grand, terrible thing that we can all agree is wrong. But here's what he realized. If I want God to be wrathful towards the sin out there that I'm upset about, he needs to be mad about the sin in here that will eventually develop into that if it's left unchecked. So Paul... Paul is concerned because there are people telling the Ephesian church, this stuff's not really that big of a deal. And he says, don't let people deceive you into thinking that this stuff doesn't really matter. It matters. And he goes on in verse 7. And he says, therefore, do not become partners with them. That is the sons of disobedience that he mentioned in verse 6. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, some translations, if you have like an NIV or an NASB translation, um, it might say, do not interact with them, which which is not actually a a helpful translation. The ESV does a good job here when it says, do not become partners with them. Paul's concern is not that we don't interact with nonbelievers or people who are struggling with sin. Paul's concern is that we don't participate in it with them. His concern is that we don't, by virtue of our participation, condone something, which means that it, you don't get drunk with your friends. Because by virtue of you being there and doing that with them, you are in some way saying, this is okay. This is not that big of a deal. And without saying anything, you're offering the empty words that Paul warns against. But he grounds it in something that should astound you, if you really think about it. He says this, don't become partners with them. Why? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Here's what Paul doesn't say. At one time you walked in darkness, but now you walk in light. At one time you acted in accordance with darkness, but now you act in accordance with light. He says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Philosophers use a word called ontology to describe what a thing is in and of itself in its very being. And so when something changes what it is, they say it's undergone an ontological shift. You don't have to write that down. But what Paul's saying here is that in some mysterious way, in our salvation, God doesn't just change how we act. God changes what we are. We used to be one thing. It's not that we used to just act one way. We used to be one thing, and God makes us something else, something else entirely. By virtue of being united to Christ and the power of the Spirit, everything he says in chapter 1 and chapter 2, by being united to the light of the world, we have become light. And Paul says, you better act like it. Mark Saunders, who's the senior pastor here at Bay Life. often has told stories about uh, the Saunders family motto, which is to love and protect. And there were times when his kids were younger where they would be sort of arguing back and forth. Maybe one of them would take a toy from another one, and they'd be chasing each other around the house and screaming and doing all the things that kids in arguments do. And he'd sit them all down, and he'd look at them, and he'd say, what's the Saunders family motto? To love and protect. Are you doing that right now? I don't know if they came up with excuses or not, but eventually they realized that they weren't doing that right now. What's what's Mark doing in that moment? Is he saying, if you don't start acting like Saunders, then you won't really be Saunders? No. He's saying this is what you are. Act like it. And this is what Paul is saying in this passage, ultimately. He's saying, you are light. God has made you something new, and you must walk in accordance with that which God has made you to be. Your standing before God is not dependent on your actions. Your standing before God should determine your actions. You are light. Now walk as light. And yet, that's not something that we know naturally. That's not something that we know how to do any more than Mark's kids knew what it meant to be Saunders the day that they were born. They were Saunders, but they had to learn what it meant to walk in accordance with that. Can can I just tell you, the sinner's prayer does not teach you how to live a Christian life. It may, if it's spoken in genuine repentance, affect that change in you, that by the power of the Spirit you've been united to Christ and you have become an adopted child of God but it won't teach you how to live in accordance with your new family name. No, I, I think we have to be taught. We have to stand in the presence of the one who's made us what we are. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, elementary schoolish, I was obsessed with outer space. For maybe, in my mind, it was like two or three years. It very well could have been two or three weeks. Who knows? And so my parents encouraged my love of space in a couple different ways. They, uh, they got me books that I didn't read, but looked at all the cool pictures in. And one year for my birthday, they took a shed in my backyard, and they painted the roof to look like the window of a rocket ship. And so I would sit in this shed in my chair with my Frisbee that was my steering wheel to my rocket ship and pretend like I was getting ready to blast off. But probably my favorite thing that, that I got during my sort of space obsession was that one time we went out on a family vacation and at one of the gift shops my parents bought me these stickers that were shaped like stars and comets and planets and they were glow in the dark and so I got home and I stuck them to the ceiling of my room and that that took me a while we got home and it was sort of sun was going down, and I, I did my best to sort of replicate what I knew of constellations on my ceiling, and then the sun goes down, and I lay down on my bed, and I'm so excited to lay in my bed in Brandon, Florida, and be seeing the night sky on the roof, and yet it was not terribly impressive. I put all the stars up as the sun was going down. They, they glowed like I could see them. I wondered if I saw them or if I was just projecting what I had hoped I would see on the roof. But here's what I figured out as the days went on. If I left all the lights on in my room, it charged up my stars on the ceiling. If they spent time in the presence of the light, what they were would shine more brightly. I, I... I assume that's how all glow-in-the-dark things work, but I don't know the science behind it because I stopped caring about space a couple weeks later. That's no different than us. God has affected a change in what we are. We've become something different, but we have to be in his presence to understand what it looks like to walk in that. Which begs the question, what are you doing? How, how are you spending time in the presence of the Lord so that you can learn what it means to walk as light, as children of the light? God certainly does that in a variety of ways. He does that through personal Bible study. He does that through prayer. He does that through devotions. He does that through life group. But I'll just tell you my conviction is he supremely does that through the church, through the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. He teaches us what it means when we gather together as siblings around the dinner table, as we celebrate new people being adopted into the family of God in baptism. The best way for us to live out our identities as people who have been made light is to spend time in the presence of the one who has affected such a great change in our identity. We will walk best as children of the light when we've listened carefully to the words of our Heavenly Father who has adopted us. And I want you to notice that us is not unintentional. Paul's language here, he doesn't say walk as a child of the light. He says walk as children. It's corporate. He assumes that we will be doing this together as we learn what it means to be made light, to walk in righteousness. Paul goes on. He says, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Of course, um, we hear this charge that Paul gives us. You are light. Walk as light. Expose darkness. And the first place that our mind goes is how we should speak the truth to an unbelieving world. How we should talk to our, our secular co-worker, friend, neighbor, family member, how we should call out sin when we see it, not shy away from naming things as being sinful that the Bible calls sinful. But pay attention to the fact that everything that Paul has just said, he's addressing to the church first and foremost. He's worried that the church will celebrate darkness, will participate in darkness, will partner with darkness. This passage cuts in a lot of different directions. But the first direction that it ought to turn our gaze is inward. Because we have no grounds to expose the darkness in the world outside of us when we cannot confess and repent of the darkness within us. So when we hear Paul say, You are light, expose the darkness, hear that first and foremost as a call to repent of your own sin. And that is painful, but it's necessary. Can I just tell you, I, I get paid to go to church, I'm a professional Christian, more or less, it's my job. I love my job, but it astounds me how many church services I can sit through, how many expositions of scripture I can sit under, how often I can hear the Bible call out sin and call for repentance and always think that it's talking to someone other than me. Always think that the sin that it's diagnosing is in someone else's heart rather than mine. Always think that the call for repentance is to my friend who wronged me rather than me who's wronged someone else. When Paul says expose the darkness, he's not just talking about what we say to the world. He's talking about what we say to ourselves. And that might require some painful work. That might require you to to go to someone you've wronged and say, I've made a mistake. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. But in doing that, you're walking in your identity as light. Once we've turned our gaze inward to expose the darkness, I still don't think we turn our gaze out towards the world, but we turn it towards the church. Listen, there is nothing more destructive than a community of Christians who will call the world to repent but refuse to do the same for one another. It destroys the platform upon which the gospel is preached. It removes our ability to speak the truth to culture. Because if we can't even keep our own family walking in the light, we have no business telling the world outside. Which means that to expose darkness requires us as Christians not just to repent of our own sin, but to be gracious and merciful and kind and not condemning or condescending, but to, to have conversations with one another and spur one another on towards righteousness. Some of the most merciful things that my friends have ever done is say, Hey, Travis, I love you but you need need to check yourself on this. You need to repent of this. You You need to turn from this. And they didn't do it in a harsh or condemning or unkind way, but in so doing, they were exposing darkness, like Paul calls us to. And then, having done all that, then we can turn our gaze to the world. And, of course, there is a place for us. There is a place for us to be willing to call something sinful. Greed, covetousness, immorality, the things that Paul's listed. That's part of the process of exposing the works of darkness. And yet, I don't know that that's the only way or even the most natural way that the people of God who have been made light expose the works of darkness. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, So I've mentioned a couple times that I went to USF for a degree in religious studies. I signed up for that as a senior in high school thinking that that was a Bible college degree. It's not. Religion at a state institution is not a study of any one particular religion. It's a study of the phenomena of religion. It's a study of, in some sense, all of the different religions of the world. And so I spent six years, because math was difficult, (laughs) studying all sorts of different faith traditions Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Wicca, Mormonism, the list goes on and on and on. And over the course of that longer than it should have been degree, my uncle Chris told me that I I needed to take a class with a particular professor. He'd been there since my uncle went to USF. He'd been there for about 20 years at this point. he taught three classes, biblical archaeology, Jesus's life and teachings, and Pauline epistles, the letters of Paul. And he was an expert in all of these fields. He was also an ordained Baptist minister. And to my knowledge, he was the only Christian, at least the only outspoken and professing Christian on the religious studies staff. And so initially, I signed up for one of his classes because my uncle told me that I should, because my uncle had taken one of his classes. And then I signed up for the rest of his classes— because it, that first class was the best decision I made in my undergraduate career. Here's what happened in those classes. Never once can I remember him criticizing any of the other faiths that we studied. At least not publicly. There was a few times that I scheduled office hours with him and he was a little bit more forthright. The only thing he did in those classes was explain the text of Scripture. Scripture. And lay out what he believed that the gospel was. And we would have some disagreements. But the only thing he did was hold out the light. And something tremendous happened as he did that. All of the other things I was learning, just by virtue of me seeing the gospel clearly, grew strangely dim. All of the other things that I had heard started to sound more and more like empty words. He didn't even have to criticize them. All he had to do was hold out the light and the darkness scattered. You know, I wonder sometimes if we as Christians have to spend so much time criticizing because our actions in and of themselves are not exposing the darkness by virtue of holding up something better and more beautiful. Because that's all my professor had to do was explain the gospel clearly to me. And I knew it was true. So that at the end of my degree, having studied all of these different religions, I was able to say, I don't even want any of them to be true. If I could lay them out and pick them. This is the most compelling one. This is true. This is right. This is good. This is beautiful. You see... Exposing the works of darkness doesn't always just look like naming them. Sometimes exposing the works of darkness just means walking in the light and showing that the gospel is better. Amen. The early Christians were masters of this. The, one of my favorite things I get to do here at Bay Life is to teach church history. And when you look at the early centuries of the church, what you find is that Christianity was born into a world that's far more hostile than you could have possibly imagined. And the early church did a good job of naming things that were sinful. You can read the writings of someone like Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist, and he's calling out things in the Roman Empire that are wicked. And yet the early church didn't spend most of their time verbally criticizing the darkness. They made their argument, but then they walked in light, and that exposed it. So, the early church didn't just say, listen, children have dignity and value and we should care for them. When the Romans left their children out in the wilderness to die of exposure, the Christians went to the wilderness and adopted them. And Christians didn't just say, listen, all human beings are made in the image of God, whether they're slave or free, male or female. The early church said, all of you people that the Roman Empire sees as less than, you can join our church, and we will treat you as fellow co-heirs of the kingdom of God. They didn't just say, this is wrong. They held out, this is what's true. This is what's good. This is what's beautiful. And, and this is the astounding thing. For about 200 years, they really didn't like us. They really didn't like us. There was a lot of persecution. It came in waves, but it was there. And yet, by around 300 A.D., even the pagans, the people who hate Christianity, start saying, you know, we think the Christians are wrong, but if we want anybody to convert to our religion, we have to start acting more like Christians. Because the way that they have lived for these last two to three hundred years, it has exposed the emptiness of the way that we live. It's shown that what they believe about the world and how they operate in it is true and good and beautiful. And we're going to have to start pretending to be Christians if we want anybody to take us seriously. Oh, that the world would say that again. Oh, Oh, that we would walk as light because God has made us that. And in so doing, just by virtue of walking in the power of the gospel, expose the darkness of the world. But that task, it's not just deconstructive. It's not just calling things bad. It's calling the world to what is good and true and beautiful, to a life of joy that can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was our calling. That was our calling in Ephesus, to walk as light, to live lives of righteousness, to expose darkness. It remains our calling to show that the gospel is not simply true, which it is but it is good, and it's beautiful. Paul says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. Pray that we would do that. Would you pray with me as we step back into worship? Father, you are our Father. Not because we have done anything, Lord, we were darkness, but you've made us light. You have united us to Christ, the light of the world. You've drawn us up into communion with you. Lord, would you teach us to walk in obedience, to live lives of faithfulness, to love you, to love our friends, to love our neighbors, to repent of our own sin. God, that the world would see again That the way of Christ, the Christian life, is not simply one way among many, but it is the best way to live. It is true, it is good, it is beautiful. God, teach us to walk as light. Teach us together as your children to walk in accordance with the name to which we have been called, the name of Jesus. We ask all of these things in his matchless name, and we say amen. Would you stand and continue in worship?
1: Everlasting, your light will shine well
0: Brothers and sisters, would you hear this charge from the Apostle Paul to you? At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.